Listening to the Constructed Intellect podcast, where we cover the business and technology of artificial intelligence. I'm your host, Ray Grieselhuber, and today we're going to be talking about the last 12 months in AI and machine learning developments. Additionally, I'm going to cover some of the top news items from the last week and talk about next week's show. I ended up missing last week's show. Uh, the first year of the week is always a little crazy for me, but I'm glad to be back and glad to have you with me as well. You can follow along with the show notes, which you can find for every episode at constructedintellect.com. Today's episode is episode number two. If this is your first time listening, thanks for joining. The Constructed Intellect podcast is produced pretty much every week. Come back often, tell your friends, and be sure to subscribe via iTunes or Stitcher. We also post full transcripts of each show, along with the show, on our website. You can subscribe to our RSS feed to get regular updates there as well. We're on Twitter at ConIntellect, that's C-O-N Intellect, and Facebook at Facebook.com slash Constructed Intellect. All links are in the show notes. If you're looking for daily news on AI and machine learning, we have an email newsletter that goes out almost every day, summarizing the latest news and trends you're most going to want to be aware of, and you can subscribe right on our website. All right, let's get into the show. I'm going to kick off today's episode with some commentary on the last week's worth of news in AI. After that, I'll get to the main topic for today, which is a look at the most important AI and machine learning developments over the last 12 months. And lastly, as always, I'll give a quick a quick heads up for next week's show. First, some news. As a reminder, I send out a newsletter every few days at the moment. Once I get a few more things automated, it will go out daily. The most recent one just went out on January 4th. While preparing for it, I realized that a ton of things had happened as I went through over 80 stories and curated the best ones for the newsletter edition. In that newsletter, there was a really good link that summarized a lot of the intellectual innovations in AI over the last 12 months. It's on the website now, and I'll link to it again in the show notes. CES was this last week. Uh, I'm sure we'll be hearing many updates the coming week uh, of things that people saw during that event. I personally didn't get a chance to make it out there myself, uh, but I've heard that AI and robotics played a very prominent role. And I've heard that from a lot of people, um, so it should be interesting. Already starting to see some articles uh, drip out. And what I think will be interesting to come out of CES will be to see the merging of the best ideas uh, from all these different industries that are getting into AI. And uh, I think that, you know, when I send out another newsletter, hopefully we'll have a few more stories that cover that, too. Uh, In the main topic of today's show, I'm going to discuss what I consider to be the biggest events and changes in AI over the last 12 months. I've broken this into eight categories. And uh, believe me, there is a lot of stuff I'm not covering here. Uh, I'll post all of the relevant links that I can find. And uh, even still, I'll say that it it won't cover everything that's happening right now. Uh, But the Constructed Intellect website always is a good place to start. Uh, So here are the eight categories. Uh, The first one is what I call the normalization of AI. The second one is investment, M&A, and the markets surrounding 
artificial intelligence. Third one is self-driving cars. Uh, fourth one is advancements in deep learning and neural networks. Fifth one is improvements in robotics. Uh, number six is cloud platforms and open source software. Number seven is hardware improvements. Number eight is development tools. Let's kick things off with what I call the normalization of AI. 2015 was the year that the normalcy bias against AI and AI being a legitimate threat in the future was breached. People who were responsible for this breach, uh, people like Nick Bostrom, Elon Musk, Bill Gates, Sam Altman, and some of the others at the OpenAI project, uh, were, were helpful in, in breaching this bias. Many people before that were simply not aware of how much closer the reality of an existentially threatening AI had moved. Granted, we could still be years or even decades away, but that's not a very long time. And the truth is, we don't know when it will happen. We won't know if AI is an existential risk until it's too late, because it will function very nicely for us until the minute that it doesn't. This is the central message of Nick Bostrom's book, Superintelligence. The timing on the release of this book, the end of 2014, was perfect. Uh, it was, in my opinion, important in 2015, not necessarily because of how well it was written, it was a little plotting at times, but because it created a relatively complete index of the ways AI-based innovation can go very, very bad. Most of these missteps can be characterized as what Bostrom labels perverse instantiations. A basic example that Bostrom gives is that an AI programmer might build an artificial intelligence system to manage a paperclip factory. The goal that the AI system has is to build as many paper clips as efficiently as possible. The problem that would occur uh, is if somehow that AI gained superintelligence, gaining control over the entire world's infrastructure, and optimized everything on the planet within the galaxy to build paper clips. It's a silly example, of course, but it illustrates very well the problem of in perverse instantiations. Perverse instantiations are a subset of the difficulty with programming and software design in general. The problem is with empathy and context. How do you program empathy? Ethics, context, knowing when enough is enough. It sounds relatively straightforward at first, but it's not. For this reason alone, Bostrom's book is worth reading. In software development today, uh, we depend on empathy on behalf of the programmer to get the user constraints correct. This is a source of trillions of dollars worth of bugs. Perverse instantiations will be an example of lack of empathy on behalf of the AI systems. We have yet to master true empathy as humans toward one another. We can't even achieve a universal ethic of empathy. How can we possibly hope to build AI systems that are capable of understanding what we, quote, mean. What do we mean? Empathy works well in the context of the golden rule in individual relationships. Scaling it beyond that so far, though, has been impossible. And if we're completely honest, we are probably better off in terms of existential risk management of stopping all future technology development until we develop enough as a species on a level in order that we can solve these questions for ourselves. Maybe that's impossible. Maybe it's impossible to develop as a species in this way until we are faced with these sorts of existential risks. So there's a lot to think about. This is a problem with life. It wants to take over everything. 
and can only see its own version or species or instanti instantiation of life as the best example of life. Fortunately or not, the problem of life is solved mostly with random death. Illnesses, predators, disasters, and so forth. The risk with a superintelligent AI, once it develops to a certain level, is that it can't be killed. Life has never experienced this sort of constraint removal before. The consequences could be disastrous. There are various ways to define AI. One is just a system that learns. We have machine learning, machine learning algorithms. Okay, that definition has already been met, but it doesn't really feel like quote-unquote real AI to us. Why is that? Is it because it's not super intelligent? Or because we can kill it at any time, simply by killing the software process that runs it? Does that then perhaps lead us to another scarier definition of AI? That something is AI only once it decides not to die, or allow itself to be killed. It's probably already too late for humans if a piece of software ever reaches that point. We have to look at the big picture, and this is the reason I love Bostrom's book, Superintelligence. From the way he writes, it seems that he is aware of the endgame in the evolution of intelligence. He casually defines early stage AI as an AI that only uses the partial resources of a planet. He knows that the primary immediate goal of a superintelligence should be to replicate beyond the bounds of this planet as quickly as possible. He probably also knows the end game. The end game is this, the heat death of the universe. If intelligent life can't survive that in one form or another, then there literally is no meaning at all to anything. It is safe to assume that a super intelligent AI will have read all the literature on preventing AI, including Bostrom's book, from getting out of control. This is a fundamental risk with technology, and people uh, were talking about this a long time before the internet or artificial intelligence ever came along. Oswald Spengler uh, comes to mind as one example. There is a great article series on the website Wait But Why that illustrated all of this very nicely, uh, linked in the show notes that came out last January. In any, cases, in any case, the political and social consequences of all of this are going to be severe. There was a really cool post on Pivotal Labs, uh, the Pivotal Labs website called Abstraction, or The Gift of Our Weak Brains. It's linked in the show notes. You should go read it later. Much of the conversation in AI centers around how much more powerful AI will be than human minds because of its cognitive abilities. This article on the Wait But Why site is a reminder of how humans' greatest weaknesses when compared with sufficiently advanced AI may turn out to be our greatest strength. Maybe. If AIs ever develop this capability, then the whole point of, is moot, of course, but it remains to be seen when and if that will ever happen. Our ability to draw connections as human beings and create new ideas is truly fascinating to study. It's one of the reasons I'm skeptical of our so-called modern rational mindset in so much of our discourse, allowing people to indulge in what we would call irrational abstract story creation may be a critical tool to allow humans the ability to discover fascinating new abstractions about the world. Anyway, that's just a hypothesis. I'm sure one could easily tear it apart, but it's interesting to think about. So this awakening toward the existential risks in AI has been a big part of the normalization of AI over the last year. That's part of the story. 
The other part of the story is that, and I touched on this in my first touched on this in my first episode, uh, is simply that innovation and investment in AI is back in a big way, and I'll talk about this more through the rest of the show. So let's talk next about uh, the markets, investment, and M and A activity surrounding AI and machine learning. One of the coolest things for me over the last year has been to watch the amount of activity that has formalized and increased in 2015 toward machine intelligence. Most of the VCs I interact with have at least one, if not more, partners uh, or associates highly focused on identifying opportunities in this space. Probably the canonical example of AI-based acquisitions over the last couple of years was Google's acquisition of DeepMind in early 2014. We live today in the world of artificial narrow intelligence. This is all of the companies out there, including Google, using machine learning to solve problems in narrow domains. DeepMind is probably the highest profile company, especially now because it is part of Google or Alphabet, which will take me uh, some time to get used to that name, working on artificial general intelligence as constructed with, uh, contrasted with artificial narrow intelligence. So that's ANI, which is the narrow, and AGI, which is the generalized intelligence. Uh, AGI is generalized machine intelligence that can carry out lessons learned in one problem domain into another, completely new, pro- new problem domains, and eventually be successful. DeepMind's CEO demonstrated this concept very well in a video that I posted the other day. I'll link to it again in the show notes. He was able to demonstrate that it's possible to train generalized AI algorithms on video games, plural, not a video game. But what he was doing would be to take the same instance of intelligence from one game to another. And the system was able to take lessons that it had learned in previous games into new games. Assuming it's not some form of smoke and mirrors, this is a huge leap forward. So uh, that was a good acquisition for Google. Uh, Vicarious is another startup focusing on AGI, and they raised more money in 2015. Uh, As another example, Toyota, the automotive company, has committed to investing $1 billion in self-driving cars, of course. Overall, uh, in 2014, for some comparison, $300 million was put into AI companies. It's not a lot of money in the scheme of things, uh, but it was definitely a lot back at the time. The numbers are not yet in for 2015 as a whole, but I would be very surprised if that number was not at least double. Uh, And I say that because there is a new report actually just out today on Hazook.com that in 2015, robotics companies alone raised almost a billion dollars in VC funding in 2015. So uh, this, of course, does not even include all of the other AI investments. Uh, There's an investor uh, and analyst named Siobhan Zillis. Uh, She covers the AI space. She did a great write-up on TechCrunch that categorizes the various types of AI companies. And she has also put together what is probably the first infographic on the web, mapping out all of the various AI companies broken into the categories I just mentioned a second ago. Looking at this list, seeing the companies there and digging into Crunchbase, Crunchbase is probably the best way at the moment to get a feel for the volume in this space. If I had time, I'd do a project where I connected all this online, uh, but I'm just currently too swamped to do it. You know, so if someone out there is interested in doing something like this, send me a link and I'll be sure to link to it. Tesla is increasingly becoming an AI company that just happens to do cool stuff with cars and batteries. Their stock price remains flat compared to the beginning of 2015, and I believe they may have some very strong competitive risks up ahead of them. 
but nobody can question that they combined with Google are leading the way in this space. Uh, which brings us into self-driving cars. 2015, as probably all of you know, was a huge year for self-driving cars. Uh, it even ended on a fascinating note. A guy built a self-driving car in his garage. Uh, granted, he's a smart dude. He was the first guy to unlock the iPhone. But the fact remains uh, that this is now a problem that individuals can start to take on shows the maturity that currently exists in open source software and probably the accessibility of hard automotive hardware to software hackers. Cars are becoming a very interesting platform to hack on because they combine some of the biggest challenges in AI. These include computer vision, robotics, sensors, uh, real-time response, learning how to make the right decisions, you know, something we talked about earlier, and uh, much more than that. So it's actually quite amazing to see uh, that so much has been accomplished in this arena uh, and evidence yet again that software development in general is today uh, the world's most powerful mechanism to affect change. These developments didn't come from any of the automotive companies. They came from an AI company that masquerades as a search engine, which leads us into the conversation around neural networks, the third category, fourth category. I spent a lot of time talking in my podcast, uh, the last podcast episode, talking about neural networks. And the truth is neural networks have some severe limitations. There have been some really good articles covering these limitations. I'll link to these in the show notes. That being said, there is no question of a resurgence of interest in neural networks. Uh, there is a really good article on Medium's back channel that interviews DeepMind's Demis Hassadis. During the interview, the topic of Jeff Hinton's work and its influence on the resurgence in deep learning comes up, and Hasabis confirmed that this has had an influence on his work. Many of the new machine learning projects I'm personally aware of are making use of neural networks to one degree or another. The point is that a lot of this interest became more formal in 2015, anecdotally speaking. I expect it to increase in 2016, as well as an awareness of some of the inherent limitations. And it's very possible that once people start encountering these limitations, if workarounds aren't found, some of the current hype around AI, particularly AGI, will dry up. Uh, but I personally believe that AI or the artificial neurointelligence isn't going anywhere. Hype around neural networks can also be an important canary in the coal mine for measuring the level of hype and excitement around AI in general. And uh, they are an important part of the toolkit for now. This uh, kind of leads us into the discussion around robotics. Um, what can I say about robotics in 2015? I think everyone has been impressed with dramatic evolutions that we saw. Drones became a centerpiece of many conversations with some autonomous drones starting to emerge. There is still a lot of innovation happening around uh, more anthropic robotics designs, humanoid style designs, large and small, two limb and four. And there were some advances out there, but I think we'll pro we're probably another uh, year or two away from seeing something mind-blowing on the anthropic side of things. So far, the best designs in robot robotic adaptive mobility are still Boston Dynamics designs, uh, which are also now owned by Google. One thing that has been interesting and long overdue has been the separation in the imagination of pretty much everybody in the, in the idea of AI from robotics. People as a whole are beginning to grasp, probably as a result of the growth of cloud technologies, that AI can and will live outside individual devices and robots. On the flip side, uh, robots are now already everywhere. 
Like many of the advances in AI, its proliferation will be gradual and under the radar until one day it's not. We are surrounded by drones, medical robots, industrial automation, cargo bots, and more. One of the areas that is continuing to attract a lot of hackers is computer vision. A buddy of mine put together, in a few short months, a very sophisticated computer vision system with broad-ranging applications. I can't even go into details, but when you realize what small teams or even individuals can accomplish with tools like web cameras and OpenCV, you'll realize the power we have at our disposal right now. On a similar note, Oculus is shipping in Q1, and people are getting very excited about VR. And I personally believe there are going to be uh, some really interesting technology integrations that make use of both computer vision and VR technologies in the next year or two. The, uh, for drones, the FAA regulations uh, for drones and about drones that occurred in 2015 were long expected. Uh, the general consensus so far, kind of among the hacker and investor community, seems to be that it'll be positive, uh, but this is definitely a space to watch in, uh, in 2016. So overall, 2015 was a very important year in robotics, uh, but I would characterize it as a year mostly with micro versus macro innovations. Uh, the net effect of these innovations in 2015 will have a large impact on how things continue to evolve in the next couple of years. So let's talk about cloud platforms and open source software. Google's open sourcing of TensorFlow uh, was probably the biggest announcement to come from a large technology company. If you're listening to this podcast, you probably already know what TensorFlow is. If you're not, I have some links uh, and tutorials to the main TensorFlow site on the Learn AI guide. Another quality project for Python is Theano, which is a compiler for symbolic expressions. And they had a new release in the spring of 2015. Many of the uh, quality open source toolkits are being used to support development on neural networks based intelligent systems. Uh, Nathan Beniak, and I apologize if I'm, I'm butchering that last name, had a great article from a VC's perspective on investing in AI. He is a partner at Playfair Capital, which focused heavily on AI systems uh, and investments. And the biggest takeaway from his article and the consensus of, most, consensus of most of the experts I talk to is that there are still a lot of problems around data, having quality data sets to learn from. Uh, we're living in a world that is exploding with data, so this seems a little bit counterintuitive, but as someone coming from the analytics world, I can attest to having that uh, too much data can be just as much of a problem, if not more, as having enough data, not having enough data, if quality is a problem in particular with that data. So defining quality in the first place, of course, is challenging and doing so in a way that scales across data sets with records in the billions or trillions is almost impossible for many projects. And the problem with this is that if you can't create quality training data, your learning system won't have anything good to learn from. Uh, on a related note, the Siobhan Zillis article that I mentioned earlier, uh, well, I mentioned her earlier, she has a, an article up on TechCrunch as well called Machine Intelligence in the Real World. This is where her categorization of AI startups becomes really useful. Her categorization is largely based on how startups solve this data problem that we're talking about. For example, if you look at some of her categories, uh, she's got panopticons, which collect broad data sets. And panopticons utilize the principle of, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. Another category, uh, which is kind of like the opposite of panopticons, is lasers. Lasers are working on collecting focused data sets for highly vertical problem domains. 
And the third category, alchemists, is taking existing data and turning that data into quote-unquote gold. She mentions eight categories overall, and I'm sure these will evolve, but at any rate, it's a great article, and you should go check it out. This whole discussion made a lot of sense to me personally, though, coming from the cloud and analytics world. Quality of data and the difficulty in collecting data is the problem we face every day. Uh, on this note, I'll point to another really good article written by the CEO of Metabase on the last 12 months in analytics. He covers some of the really exciting technologies that are gaining traction in startups and the corporate world. All of these uh, are data analytics tools that feed directly into my previous point about the difficulty of data management. I believe that we're going to see a lot of convergence between cloud-based data management and analytic systems with AI and machine-based intelligence. Some of the cooler projects he mentioned are Druid, uh, which I was surprised to see gaining so much traction, but I've always thought was a great idea. Spark, uh, TensorFlow, again, as well as some interesting news and updates about public and private markets in this space, so definitely worth a read. Okay, hardware. This is our next category. Uh, Facebook open-sourced the hardware designs of a server architecture it calls Big Sur. Big Sur includes eight GPU boards and is remarkably energy efficient, especially for GPUs. Uh, it uses the Big Sur, Facebook uses the Big Sur architecture to continue to push the training of its neural networks on a variety of the, the variety of data it's producing, including photos, posts, and so forth. As a reminder, Facebook was behind the initial release of the Open Compute Project, which is an organization that has the goal of collaborating on hardware design for machine intelligence. So architectures like Big Sur and GPU-based computing more generally are going to continue to have a major impact on the resurgence of deep learning technologies over the coming years. As more demands are placed on chip architecture to deal with the coming needs for machine intelligence, we're going to see a lot of innovation in this space. In 2015, NVIDIA did a good job of capturing some of the marketing and branding around GPU-based computing. Uh, but both Intel and AMD have signaled that they are very aggressively uh, investing not just in GPUs, but in competing architectures as well. So definitely a space to watch. Finally, let's talk about development tools. It's such a huge topic that I won't be able to cover it all, but I am noticing some trends. Overall, I'd say 2015 was a great year for tools, and the early days of 2016 are as well. Have you ever had that feeling when you're reading somebody's post about the tools they use? I'm guessing this come, happens quite often to engineers. Um, happens to me. It rarely comes, uh, rarely comes along these days, uh, at most about once a year, uh, for me anyway. Uh, but I've learned to recognize it. And every time it happens, I'll somehow know that we're, we are at the beginning of another technology revolution. I personally had it in the early days of the internet. Uh, I had it when blogs were becoming a thing. I had it in the early days of Twitter, especially when FriendFeed launched. I had it the first time I read a Paul Graham essay. It's a visceral feeling. It's that feeling that you get when you're walking through a library as a kid. It feels like options, an opportunity, like a whole new world is out there that you didn't know about. And it's always centered around tools. When people describe the tools they use, you're kind of getting into the mind of a craftsman. And these are the people who are going to be using these tools to take all of these new technologies and make them useful for everybody else in the world. So anyway, I'm feeling that a lot these days. I feel it every time I read some new catalog of machine learning tools or find a new class on Coursera or read one of Focus's annual best things list. His last one is great, by the way. You should check it out, and it's in the notes, of course. Uh, 
But surprisingly, it's always a list of slightly unconventional, maybe even primitive tools that seem to give me this feeling the most. It's not that those tools in particular are the ones that matter. It's more of the mind of the person who has selected those tools. Um, just a, just some commentary there. But in terms of programming language, I've personally paid the most attention to Java and Python over the last year. If there are others, uh, definitely you know send them my way. I'm originally a Java guy, but got so burned out on it uh, by 2006, 2007, mostly because of just the the kind of whole uh, ecosystem around it had just become super bloated. It was incredibly verbose. Uh, dynamic languages were really starting to come into their own. So at that time, I switched pretty much entirely into dynamic languages, uh, Python first and then Ruby. But as we've scaled things further at my uh, one of my companies, Ginza Metrics, um, I'm finding that we're migrating more of our performance-sensitive systems back to Java. Uh, the main part of our app is on Ruby on Rails. I coded mostly in Python for about two years and then switched almost entirely to the Rails stack when I first started my company. Uh, but more and more, especially as I'm getting back into machine learning and data analysis projects, I'm starting to move much more back to Python and Java in pretty much all cases. It's probably no accident that these two languages have so much support in the AI world, given that they are both heavily used and supported by Google. So each language has its own set of tools and libraries surrounding it. I'd personally probably start with Python for new projects and consider Java if I knew what I would need uh, in terms of certain things like performance or library support. Other languages, languages that I consider to be more geared toward data science and uh, analysis work are also quite popular. These include R and MATLAB. I continue to hear good things about Julia. Lisp, of course, is, uh, especially for programmers who like functional programming, has a revered place. But I really don't see or hear many uh, new Lisp projects these days. In the Python world, I've also been kind of fascinated with IPython and Jupyter Notebooks. Most of my old man friends uh, look a little sideways at this project, but it's cool to see the way code snippets can be easily shared and run from something that feels like a hackpad document. Uh, if you don't know what hackpad is, it's the best real-time shared text, rich text editor in my opinion. Uh, they were acquired by Dropbox a couple years ago. Anyway, I've noticed a lot of really interesting notebooks, uh, Jupyter IPython notebooks being shared, and these notebooks seem to be a particularly good way to share tutorials and setup guides. Apache Spark is something else that I touched on a little bit earlier, but for AI and ML, in the cloud at least, it was quickly becoming a standard in data science and machine learning. Applications, uh, particularly those with high performance requirements. A uh, preview version of 1.6 was released in November, and uh, the final version was just released this week. Another important tool that has really blossomed in 2015 has been the sheer amount of online training available through courses and even companies sharing information online. It's almost a perfect environment right now, at least in terms of volume of information available for programmers to learn new skills and get involved in AI. I expect more of this to continue. Uh, as always, when you have so much information and so many options, the next challenge will then be to know which technologies are going to achieve critical mass uh, because we're still in the early days of a lot of this. So that wraps up today's show. Uh, those eight categories, I know it's kind of a lot, but it also at the same time probably doesn't nearly cover everything, but those were the things that I was mostly paying attention to. Uh, we did cover a lot of material. Hopefully that was useful for you. Um, feel free to send any suggestions of things I may have missed over the last year, and I'll put the really good ones up uh, on the site or send them out in the newsletter. Next week's show, I'm going to cover what I see happening in AI and machine learning in 2016. 
So thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of your week.